We're going to be looking together at uh, Paul's letter to the Romans uh, and chapter 11. And we come to verse 33, Romans 11 and verse 33. Where it says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul's coming to the conclusion of the first part of the book. Romans chapters 1 through to the end of 11, uh, Paul is setting out why he is so enthusiastic about the message that he longs to bring to the people in Rome. He warms to his theme, he spells it out, he thrills to it, and he comes to this conclusion uh, at the end of verse 11, then from verse, uh, chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 11, then from chapter 12 onwards, he Well, chapter 12 begins, therefore, and chapter 12 through to the end is then dealing with, well, what do we do in the light of this? How does this affect our lives? And he spells that out through the next chapters. But here he is coming to the conclusion of all that is said about God's amazing plan of salvation. And it There's some exclamations here. He speaks about some mysteries, and then he makes some big statements. But the exclamations there in verse 33, this word, oh. It's the only time, actually, in the New Testament this word appears in this this kind of way. It's, It's unique, and it's like Paul is thinking about all his sentences, Oh, there's no other way of expressing it, really. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's an expression of amazement, of, of being kind of overwhelmed. I remember I had the privilege of going to university in North Wales and uh, right on the, the edge of Snowdonia. And I remember one Saturday afternoon, soon after I'd arrived there, um, I'd finished work and I decided I'd just go out for a walk from uh, the village where I was staying and walked the, the road, the little lane just led up and up and up and uh, I came from London, narrow streets of the city and so on and I'm walking up this lane uh, and suddenly as the, as the, the scenery opened out there was a, a, a view that, that absolutely overwhelmed me. I just kind of stood at it and looked at it that's the sheer vastness, scale, and awesome, fearsome kind of majesty of that scene that I, I saw. I just thought, what do you say? And I guess that's how Paul feels here. He's, he's been talking about our condition as sinners. He's been speaking about what God has done about it, that he sent his son to be the bearer of his anger against our sin, and Jesus willingly did that to make atonement for us who were totally undeserving. Everyone is undeserving. Now, 
we have peace with God, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He spelled it all out. He speaks about the sovereignty of God, that God knew us beforehand, and God always planned that we should be saved. Well, what about Israel? He's dealt with that. He's dealt with the whole scenery. And it's as if he comes to this point now and looks back, and it, it, it's greater than the sight that confronted me in North Wales. He looks at this and says, this is vast. Oh, so that's kind of speechless, overwhelmed at what he sees. And he speaks of riches and wisdom and knowledge, but he's amazed by it. When we worship God, we worship God on the basis of th- words like doctrine or theology. Some people just love worship. And for them, maybe, I hope there's no one in that category here this morning, but there are those who, when they come here on a Sunday, it's the first part of the meeting that's really the enjoyment. Worship. And then we get to, okay, uh, kind of listening to the message is the price you've got to pay for a good time of worship. Um, but who knows? We, you know, wait a minute. Paul here is worshipping because of the truths he's been looking at. Theology and worship go together. Theology leads to worship. Worship is because of theology, because of truth about God. And to have either without the other is kind of ugly. To get into doctrine and argue about, well, what about propitiation? Do we really believe that Jesus bore the wrath of God? To argue about things like that without a heart of worship is ugly. And to have worship with no reason for it, apart from we like the tunes, <laughs> that's ugly as well. But here Paul is saying, he's looked at all he's looked at, and he, he says, he concludes at the end of chapter 11, God has bound all men, uh, 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 verse 32, right, it's not the end, it's the end of the previous section, God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing the plan of God. It's amazing what God has done. And so he worships. And he speaks of, as it says here, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. There is some debate about how that should be translated, whether it should be depth of or depth and. Some say it should be, oh, the depth, uh, sorry, riches of or riches and. Uh, Some say it should be the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. In other words, there are three deep things, riches, wisdom, and knowledge, and the NIV puts it how it does, the depth of the riches of. Well, whichever way, and it's pointless debating it, you end up with depth, riches, wisdom, and knowledge, and that's all there. And he speaks of the, the, rich, the depth of riches. What takes his breath away? The scale, depth, speaks of something unfathomable, vast, and the first thing that is vast is the riches of God. Paul often enthuses about that. Let me take you on a bit of a journey, just a few references in Ephesians, because there's a whole crop of them in Paul's enthusiastic letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, "...in him..." We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Riches 
of grace, lavished. In verse 18, in that same chapter, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. God is rich in mercy. And then verse um, 16, uh, verse 7 there, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Last week we were looking at this word kindness. Here he speaks about the incomparable riches of his grace. Do you know God is the one person it is impossible to exaggerate about. He is the, the ultimate of everything, the riches of his grace. Into chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 8, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And verse 16 in that same chapter, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul enthuses about the riches of God. It's like, again, he's looking back at all the things he's spoken about here in these preceding chapters. And he sees, uh, thinking of it like a, 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 a mountain scene, he, he sees these great peaks of justification, of of redemption, of propitiation, of predestination, foreknowledge, all these big words. And he looks at these mountains and he looks at it all and it's like he says, there's gold in them, their hills. They're riches, riches, things to dwell on, things to enthuse about, things to be moved by. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. It's like a, a vast ocean. And this is wealth that completely changes our value system. How can you value highly anything else at the expense of this? And if you're listening to these words and you're thinking, I don't really see it. Well, remember what Paul prays for the Ephesians. I'm praying that God will open your eyes to see those riches. Make that your prayer. I, I want to value the grace of God. I want to value who Jesus is, the riches, the unsearchable riches of Christ. You get his enthusiasm. Hey, the spirit that motivates him is the spirit who comes to us, stirring us to say, this is, this is wealth. This is wonderful. And he goes on, all oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. God's wisdom and knowledge. God's wisdom is what he's been expounding. The way God has left no loose ends. The way everything wonderfully fits together so that God is able to be just and justify people who are ungodly. How could a holy God just forgive? It's as if, well, wrongdoing doesn't matter, but he's found a way to be just and to justify the wisdom of God. 
And what about all of human history and God's chosen people under the old covenant and how does all this work out? He spelled out the wisdom, the amazing wisdom of God. Writing to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul speaks about this wisdom. And he says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I'll frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. What wisdom? The amazing wisdom of God to send the promised Messiah and let him be killed. It's a totally upside-down wisdom. But hey, it's wiser than any human wisdom. What an amazing plan to allow his son to die in weakness and shame where it looks like evil has triumphed and hope is lost. Death has won. But in the wisdom of God, three days later, he's alive again. And in the wisdom of God, he's ascended on high, seated at the right hand of the Father, offering now free salvation to anyone who will believe. Hey, what an amazing plan. What an amazing wisdom, a crucified Savior. But it's the wisdom of God that works. And in everything, God works for the good of those who love him. What wisdom. What amazing wisdom. Paul is thrilled with it, and he sees it as part of his mission, and indeed our mission, to delight in that. To realize that the wisdom of the intellectuals just leads to frustration. They can't understand. To to them, this is foolishness. But our mission, he says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, will God's intention was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The depth of God's riches, the depth of his wisdom and his knowledge. The amount that you and I know is pretty limited, isn't it? I mean, there are many here who know a whole lot more than I do, but actually, in terms of the whole universe and all of history, how much do we know? But God is all-knowing. He knows everything. The depth of God's knowledge is amazing. And he doesn't forget anything. He never has to think, I can't quite remember that. He knows. He knows about how everything works. He knows where everything is. He knows everyone, whoever has been and whoever will be. And the Bible says, not a sparrow drops to the ground, but he knows. The depth of God's knowledge 
totally, totally mind-blowing. So in Psalm 139, the psalmist reflects on this, the, the amazing knowledge of God. Psalm 139, he says, Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too lofty for me to attain the knowledge of God. Oh, the depth of God's knowledge. God knows what you're thinking right now. God knows things that no one else knows about you. And you hope no one else will ever know, but he knows. He knows about tomorrow. He knows about next week, next year. He's able, through the prophets, to tell us what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next year. Because he knows. Knows everything. Oh, the depth. What a God. See why Paul just says, oh, the depth of the riches of God. Hey, there's gold, there's treasure in God. But then God's wisdom, how he's done things, and what he knows. And his knowledge is not just knowing about, as we've seen. God's knowledge is, a, is knowing us intimately, having relationship with us, and it's a, not, a relationship with us that he had from eternity past, the foreknowledge of God. Oh, the depth of God's knowledge. He knew us. He knew us before we were conceived. He knew he wanted us to be his, and we are his because of God's knowledge. He, he knows our hearts. And in his wisdom, he devised a way whereby we could be reconciled with him. It's amazing. It's amazing. Because we know, having been saved, yes, we've changed, but we're still not perfect. How can we, imperfect as we are, have relationship with God? Well, God, in his wisdom, knowing the depths of our hearts, has found a way for us to know him. It's amazing. All oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Well, there's some exclamations of just, oh, then he goes on to speak about some sheer mysteries, and of course the things that we've spoken about are mysteries, but he goes on to say how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord, and so on. Paul now, as he's worshipping God, as he's amazed by God, goes on to speak about some things that we can never comprehend, things that we can never understand. In our worship time, someone led us in prayer about God being bigger. He's greater. Yes, we, we can't understand him. Often, for some people anyway, that is a problem. They will be, uh, you're, you're trying to explain the gospel to them and they kind of scratch their head and say, I just don't get that. I don't understand. Exactly. You never will understand some things. How can we understand God? How can the finite grasp the infinite? One of the glories of God is he is incomprehensible. We can't understand. We worship. We worship him. Yes, we understand truth and we get hold of all the stuff that Paul has been expounding through these 11 chapters. We don't just say, oh, I can't understand any of that. No, there's treasure there. There's riches. 
Let's get into it. Let's value truth. But how unsearchable his judgments, God's judgments, his decisions, his decrees, the things that he decides to do and the things that he decides will be, these things, Paul says, are just unfathomable. They're unsearchable. I mean, a basic question to address to a holy God, why do you want to save sinners? Why? Can't answer that one. Why? Why would you want rebels with you for eternity? Why? It's beyond understanding. Can't come up with a neat answer and say, well, it's for this reason. It's unsearchable. It's unfathomable. Why the cross? Why, oh God, once you've decided you do want sinners with you for eternity, why that way of achieving it? Why that cost? Why the cross? It's unsearchable. It's unfathomable. All you can do is worship. Say, oh God, God, amazing love. How can it be? Can't grasp it. Can't understand it. His, his decisions are unsearchable. You can't fathom them. How, and his paths beyond tracing out. His ways, his paths are untraceable. They're inscrutable. You can't follow. We can maybe see some of the way he's going. Then we say, I just don't get this. I can't follow this. His path is untraceable. Say, oh, I'm lost. Yeah. He's beyond us. His wisdom is totally beyond us. Remember what he says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55 and verse 8. It's that God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. His paths are beyond tracing out. His ways are higher than ours. We can follow the track for a bit and think, yes, I think I get this, and suddenly we're lost. Can't follow this. That's God, the mystery of God. We are too small. We are too finite to ever grasp God. You see, actually then, there are grave limitations to the value of what's technically called apologetics. Trying to make the gospel reasonable. There is a logic in the gospel and we can explain those things, but actually, we can't explain God. And there's, there's a limit to what can be explained. His paths can't be traced. Get to the point where we say, I'm stuck. I don't get this. Yeah, he's God. His ways are higher than ours. doesn't mean to say we close off our mind totally. No, Paul clearly hasn't closed off his mind. Look at all he said in these 11 chapters, glorying in it. But it comes to the point where you just have to kneel down and worship. So that's as far as we go. Oh, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths, they're untraceable. And as he considers these mysteries, he then throws out three questions 
in verses 34, 35, three different questions, but they all have the same answer. And the answer to each of these questions is the simple answer, no one. Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has been his counselor? No one. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Answer, no one. Who has known his mind? Really, that's what he's just been talking about, isn't it? The the judgments of the Lord that are unfathomable, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has ever grasped God's mind? (laughs) Who... God knows everything, but can we know his mind? We see glimpses. We see what he has chosen to reveal, and he has chosen to reveal. This is what the Bible is, God revealing his mind. But, hey, the things that are revealed belong to us, but the hidden things, the secret things, they belong to God, and we can't grasp his mind. And then this crazy question Who has been his counselor? To whom did God ever turn for advice? (laughs) To whom did God ever say, can you help me out? Who has ever been his counselor? Who has ever helped God through a difficulty? Helped God come to terms with something tragic that has just happened? Who is that? He's God. God, totally self-sufficient. Who has ever given him advice? That's one of the lessons that comes through in the wonderful book in the Old Testament, the book of Job. Job is going through some mysteries. God's path is beyond tracing out, and the way God is leading his servant Job, it, it, it was completely incomprehensible, but nonetheless, Job has got some well-intentioned friends who think they can suss the whole thing out. Oh, they've got a grip on it. They can understand it, and they start trying to explain it all to Job. They're way off course. And in the end, God steps in, puts them all in their place. They, they can't understand God. God's ways are mysterious. And in Job chapter 38, God says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? So it goes on. God just speaking about what he has done. He says, you weren't around. You are not part of the committee. You weren't there with your measuring line and your calculations telling me how to do it. Where were you? I did it. I did it. I fixed limits for the ocean. I put the mountains there. I put the depths of the sea there. I caused, I I put the storehouses of snow and releases them sometimes. That's God. Didn't ask us. Didn't need anyone. Who has ever been his counselor? What a God. Doesn't need our help. When we pray, we don't need to tell God how to do it. Come up with a good scheme, God. This one should work. (laughs) He knows. He knows what to do. He knows when to do it. He's the only wise God. Who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given to God? You know, we can be so arrogant. 
We can argue with how God does things as if we know best. God knows best. He doesn't need our advice, nor does he need anything else. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? God needs nothing. You know, the question that arises with certain people's birthdays or at Christmas time, why do you give to the person who's got everything? (laughs) Well, that's God. He's got everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He didn't need our advice in how to create, and he doesn't need us now. The great mystery is he allows us to work together with him, and he allows us to be involved in the fulfillment of this great plan that the earth should be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. He involves us. He says, go, you go, make disciples of all nations. You teach them to obey everything I've commanded. He involves us in his great mission. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. It doesn't depend on us. It's God. Our privilege is to obey him. And the great privilege of being workers together with God. You get that from the Apostle Paul who's giving his life to spreading this message. But you always get the sense of wonder that God allows him to do it. Sometimes think that God needs us or that God needs our money. No, he doesn't. God is never hard up. Some people are a bit puzzled by the very low-key way we introduce the passing round of the blue buckets as if we're virtually saying to people, please don't give. Well, no, actually, we're not saying that, but we're saying, really, God doesn't need anything. If we didn't give anything to God, would he be impoverished? He's God. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him. He's never in our debt. He never owes us anything. We could really make supreme sacrifices and then think God owes us something now. No, he doesn't. He doesn't ever owe because everything is his. He is totally, wonderfully, magnificently self-sufficient. He's God. (laughs) Oh, That's what Paul can say, oh, stand in awe of you. This is God. And he's just been reflecting. I don't know if Paul was dictating this letter. Maybe he started in the morning to dictate this letter. Probably at the outset he didn't intend it should be as long and involved as it is. But if he's been dictating maybe through the day, and he's got to this point, his mind is filled with all the wonderful truth he's been talking about. I think, God, you're wonderful. We could never have dreamt this one up. We could never have planned it like that. If we'd been advising you, it would have been so inferior. You're God. And right now, Paul is aware he wants to go to Rome and he's, he's suffered some things along the way, but God doesn't owe him anything. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? He's magnificent. He's God. And then three statements, verse 36. Had some questions and some statements. For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
all things would seem to be pretty comprehensive. Obviously, primarily, I guess, Paul is thinking about salvation. That's what he's been talking about. But actually, he's been talking more widely about that. He's been painting a much bigger picture. He's been speaking about creation. And he said how creation was subjected to pain and decay and frustration and so on. And creation is going to be liberated. So he's got a big view of all of creation. Why is it how it is? Why is there suffering? He's, he's comprehended all of that. It's all to do, actually, he says, with our salvation and the sons of God ultimately being revealed and creation being liberated into the glory of freedom. He's got a pretty big canvas here as he paints the story, and surely all of that comes into those two little words, all things. All things, everything, from him, through him, and to him. God is supreme. God is uniquely sovereign, supreme, superior. Everything is from him. Well, of course it is. He's the creator of everything. Nothing exists apart from what he created. It all comes from him, and it all comes then from his wonderful imagination, his wonderful design. It's God who made things how they are. It's all from him. And with regard to our salvation, it's certainly all from him. It's his decision His plan, his choice, it's from him. He initiates our salvation. God didn't see that there was something good in us and decide he was going to sort of have us because of what he saw. It's all from him. It's entirely his initiative and through him. In terms of our salvation, God provides the means atonement, redemption. Our ability to believe is through Him because we're naturally hostile to God, naturally deeply biased and prejudiced against God. Our nature would cause us to hear all of this and say, that's rubbish. That's the instinctive reaction. The the wise say, foolishness. That's what Paul says. He recognizes that. He's had people say it to him. That's that's how we are. The, The natural person can't accept this stuff. It's absolutely foolish. Why did we accept it? Through him. God opened our eyes. God opened our heart. We didn't. We couldn't. God did it. God caused the truth to suddenly come as truth. His eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon filled, flamed with light. My chains fell off. What did we do? We just walked out. God did it. God came. God enabled us to believe. God enabled us to repent. Only God could deal with our pride. Only God could bring us to that point where we say, I have sinned. God, you're right. I'm deeply wrong. To repent, to believe in Jesus, to accept the gift of salvation is all his work. It's grace, the riches of his grace that took hold of you and me and brought us into what we're in. And it's it's through him, all of it, that we have a hope. 
that we can know God, that we can enjoy God, that our lives can change, that we can be, be free from sin that gripped, habits that we, that, that we just couldn't shake off. Now through Him, we can. There's salvation, there's freedom, there's liberation. All of that release through Him, from Him, through Him. We don't need to look elsewhere. We don't need to seek the world's answers to our problems. We don't need professional counseling and all of that stuff. No, it's through Him. His Spirit comes to me and breaks through strongholds. His Spirit comes and liberates me so I can know God and walk in the freedom of the sons of God. It's through Him. It's a big gospel. It's massive. That's why Paul is enthusing about it. It's from Him. And it's through Him. And it's to Him. It's got a direction. Everything has got a direction. Everything is heading somewhere, and it's heading to the fulfillment of God's plan and to His glory. My life, your life, has got a direction. Whatever path God appoints for us, whatever route He decides we should take, We know where it's heading, to Him, to Him. Arriving at that destination will be different for each one of us, I guess. We'll all go different routes, all go through different circumstances, and we'll all finally be ushered into His presence by a different way. Well, we'll all go through death, but that death will come in different ways, that's what I mean. For some, maybe prematurely. For some, in great old age. Some through suffering. Some, well, all kinds of different ways. But it's to Him. And when we get there, we're with Him forever. And when we get there, there's the reward. There's just the joy of the fullness of salvation. We're, in, we're, we're through. We're through. And we're with Him forever. Everything is to Him for His pleasure and His glory. Whatever route you're going right now, this is for Him. I'm doing this for you, Lord. It's for your praise. It's for your glory. Because everything's from Him. It's through Him. And Lord, it's for you. Read the stories of great saints in the past who have come into the ultimate a destination, they've come to God through fire, through torture, whatever. But see the way they've gone through. See the way they're giving God glory, even as the flames leap around them and kill them. It's amazing. It's for Him. It's not about me as if you should do it my way. It's all about Him. That's Paul's motivation. Because he's looked at the landscape. Because he's considered all that he's spoken about in these 11 chapters and he's got hold of what he can get hold of and he's deeply impressed with it. And he thinks, wow, oh, from him, through him, and to him. That applies to all the difficult things he's been speaking about in chapters 9, 10, and 11. It's God's plan. He's doing it. And ultimately, it will arrive where he says it will, even though it doesn't look like it's working out right now. It will, because in history, we see he's always worked out the plan. He's a magnificent God. From him, through him, and to him. Whatever path God chooses, it's all for him. And so he concludes, to him be the glory forever. 
Amen. To him be the glory forever. That's a great motto to have for your life, isn't it? God, I don't care whether I'm apparently successful or apparently a failure as long as you get glory. I don't care if I prosper or fail as long as you're glorified in it. I don't care about anything so long as you're glorified. Paul doesn't know what lies ahead for him. He's hoping to visit Rome. He could never have guessed how he's going to arrive in Rome via shipwreck as a prisoner facing who knows what outcome. He couldn't know, but to him be the glory forever. God was glorified through that shipwreck. God was glorified through the whole thing. That's what Paul lived for. That's a good thing to live for. And you will live for it when you're as deeply impressed as Paul is with the landscape he sees behind him. The depth, the riches of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, his unfathomable decrees, his paths that I can't trace them. Amazing God. To him be the glory forever. And then he has that word, amen. Which is normally the word that we tack on to someone's prayer. Or if we're praying, we put it at the end so people know we're finished. Does it kind of stop the prayer fraying at the edges? What's it, what's it there for? Well, amen is an expression of affirmation, of agreement. Well, why, so if, if it means I agree, why put it on the end of your own prayer? Because of course you agree with it. Else you wouldn't have prayed it. Well, no, it's, it's an expression of yes. And you see what Paul is saying here. To him be the glory forever. Yes. Yeah, I, I affirm that. He's saying this is my personal conviction. This is my wholehearted affirmation. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's saying I ask for nothing more than that. I ask for nothing more than that you, O God, because of who you are, that you should be glorified through my existence. If my existence can bring you glory, let it be. Choose the path, choose the circumstances. But Lord, if my existence can bring you glory, amen. Yes, Lord. So Paul's a worshiper, but he's a worshiper because of truth. It's truth that fills his worship. You see it in these wonderful, wonderful words. It's our reason for worshipping. Conversely, of course, worship will be a problem to us if we haven't yet got hold of some of those things. If we're ignorant of any of that, then worship can be a duty and something we just don't understand. But When we've seen this landscape, when we've seen these high peaks, when we've seen these depths, then you can only say, oh, you'll worship. And if you're not there yet, then let Paul's prayer apply to you. I pray that God would open the eyes of your heart, that you'll know him better, that you'll see these unsearchable riches. You'll realize the riches of grace, the riches of Christ. Don't 
waste your time on other things. These are riches. This is pure gold. To see God like this and to love him like this, to live for him like this. So your heart cry can be, to him be the glory forever. And you say, yes, amen.